welcome to another episode of I'm Reviewing Here, a podcast where I, Matthew Bussey, am watching and reviewing Sight and Sound's top greatest movies of all time. I really wish I had a podcast studio. I hate this freaking room that I'm in right now. It's my office, quote unquote, but it's loud. You see it echoes. Hello. Hello. Did you hear that? Yeah. So, um, wow, I'm back and this is totally unfiltered. I'm not going to go back and uh, edit anything. Uh, I used to do that in the past because I just can't shut up sometimes, but um, I'm not going to do it. So, wow, it's good to be back. Um, yes, I did uh, post uh, a short little update uh, last, no, not last week. When is this? I'm so out of loop. I don't remember how this works. What's a podcast? Um, yes, okay. I don't want to dwell on it for that long, but um, for those of you who are new and just listening to this podcast, I mean, it's kind of weird that you're starting right in the middle, but it's fine. Hi, I'm Matt. Uh, Nice to meet you. doesn't make any sense. But um, yes, so let's just start from the beginning. I started this podcast in uh, early 2023. Every 10 years, beginning in 1952, I believe, Sight and Sound, <laughs> that's when I started this podcast, that's, it feels like that's what I was going to say, uh, Sight and Sound announces the top uh, greatest movies of all time. They get, uh, they, you know, reach out to all these film critics and film curators and film programmers, and they ask them to submit what they believe are the greatest movies of all time. And every 10 years, they unveil the list. So in 2022, they unveiled the list. I am a podcast fanatic like unhealthy nerd, like I should be in the psych ward for how obsessed I am with podcasts and also for how weird I am in general and how much I just love to talk out loud uh, incessantly. So I started this podcast in 2023 where I went through the list from the bottom to the top. I got to 50 episodes and then I got so worn out, so tired and just so busy with things going on in my personal life and, and, um, you know, I've been open with my anxiety disorders and everything. I mean, have I? I I don't remember. Well, (laughs) you know now. Uh, So I kind of decided to put this on pause uh, and I didn't even leave uh, a warning or a sign or anything that I was stopping this. But you know what I didn't stop doing? I didn't stop going through sight and sounds lists. So I've been continuing to watch these movies since uh, the last episode, which was in like June, I think. Uh, I've gotten through at least like 25 to 30 more movies uh, on the list and I'm continuing. So um, I promised myself I wasn't getting into why I stopped podcasting last year, but you know, I had to because it's been on me for a while and I missed it. And you know what? If I'm bad in this episode, then cut me some slack, Jack. All right. It's been what? Since June. It's like I said. So It is good to be back, though. I am back. I'm loud still. I'm echoing. It is the first week of January when I'm recording this. It is a rainy-ass day here in Philadelphia. You can probably hear the rain if you listen closely. It's like, I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate the rain in the winter. God, it should be illegal. Uh, But um, you know what? Let's just get started. Enough small talk. Today, after a very long time, I'm very excited to be reviewing again. And the first movie, I believe this is movie 51, but again, it's from the bottom to the top, so it's not movie 51. I'm taking you all to Scotland, and we're going to talk about a very, very pleasant movie called I Know Where I'm Going. But actually, there's an exclamation point, so it's called <clears throat> I, I'm not going to scream it. Take a listen. I'm going to be married. Robert Berenger's one of the wealthiest men in England. Must be nearly as old as I am. 
Everything's arranged. We're going to be married on an island called Caloran. Takes a day and a night to get there. had a gale warning. No crossing today. Well, what will that mean? It can last for a day, it can blow for a week. It looks so near, in half an hour we could be there. In less than a second you could get from this world into the next. You must think I'm awful, breaking my neck to marry a rich man. Think you know better than folk who've lived here all their lives? I'm on the brink of losing everything I've ever wanted. I think you're the most proper young lady I've ever met. Nothing is stronger than true love. Ugh, that's a really good trailer. Uh, that's an updated trailer, too, but because uh, the movie was restored uh, a few years back. I forget the year. I didn't take note of that. But I know where I'm going. This is a romantic film with a lot of humor, a lot of uh, Scottish folklore, kind of like almost like fantastical elements to it. It is a film written and directed by uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who... I actually reviewed, I've reviewed two of their movies, A Canterbury Tale and The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp was like two episodes ago. I've mentioned this before, but you know, Powell and Pressburger, they are considered like, and I'm just speaking for myself here or speaking subjectively, you know, they are basically England's like most famous acclaimed directors, uh, the most famous acclaimed directors of all time. They were a duo. They were pals. They wrote and directed and like produced all of their movies. Like they had full control of them basically. And they're really growing on me. Uh, A Canterbury Tale was one of the first episodes, uh, first movies I reviewed on this podcast. And, you know, I think I was a little harsh in retrospect. It didn't really, it's not that it didn't stick with me. I think I just had no idea what to expect from the movie. And that's why when it was over, I kind of was kind of, I was just a little bit like, uh, hmm, different, beautifully filmed, original. Did I, did, is it one of the best? I don't really know. And then The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, I think I just have to rewatch it. I really did not enjoy that movie, probably because it was like 50 trillion hours long. And it just really kind of, I don't know, it wasn't for me, but you know what? Both movies stuck with me and I know where I'm going is absolutely my favorite of their movies so far. I'm certain that they have more movies on uh, Satan Sounds list, but this movie, and like so many of their movies, it's so good because you can just tell how original it is. I, I think that's kind of like the best quality about I Know Where I'm Going is that it's just a very original movie. It has a very simple... Uh, premise that we see in so many rom-coms and so many romantic dramas as well. But Powell and Pressburger, they really kind of put their own spin on it, you know? They really do. And it's just so unique. It's a unique movie. I, like, I knew how it would end, and, you know, they give you that ending, but again, they kind of add their little uh, style and, and twist to it. 
It's very different. Their movies are so different. Like there's no there's no way to categorize Powell and Pressburger. They don't have one specific genre. Like you know, Wes Craven, R.I.P. It's like oh, he was the horror guy. Uh, uh, you know, um, oh god, why am I like blanking white now? White now, white now, right now. Excuse me. Um, I can't think of one. Uh, no, like who does like you know? I don't know thrillers. There are directors that you know are acclaimed for just doing thrillers, or directors who are known for just doing doing like romance romances or something like that. But Powell and Pressburger, they don't have one genre. Like they kind of just did anything. They they would take a genre, they would take elements from the genre, and then they would just totally tweak it and make it such a weird, almost like whimsical work of art. So I really love this movie. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, it came out in 1945. It's in black and white. And I think that was a Freudian slip why I said white earlier. I think I was getting ready to say it was in black and white, but, and also, again, I've mentioned this before. There is a window right in front of me right now. So I have to look at myself when I talk and I, I'm supposed to get a haircut today and my hairdresser had to quit or had to postpone or cancel because whatever, because he's in the hospital. Say no more. I don't know what happened. I didn't want to ask. But um, anyway, let's get into the plot, shall we? Plot synopsis. So this plot synopsis is brought to you courtesy of Wikipedia. Yeah, I know. You see, when I came back, I was hoping to write uh, plot synopses myself, but I don't got the time. I don't got no time. So let's get into it. Uh, Joan Webster, played by Academy Award winner Wendy Hiller, she won an Oscar for this movie called Separate Tables uh, many years after this movie in the 50s. She plays Joan Webster. Joan Webster is a 25-year-old middle-class English woman with an ambitious, independent spirit. She knows where she's going, or at least she thinks she does. She travels from her home in Manchester to the Hebrides. Hebrides, that's how you say it. God, I just practiced this shit, and I'm already messing it up. Hebrides, uh, to marry Sir Robert Bellinger, a wealthy, much older industrialist on the Isle of Killerin. Killerin is a fictitious isle, by the way. It doesn't, make, it, it, uh, doesn't exist. Hebrides is a real place, though, in... Scotland, it's an archipelago, which I can never say, on uh, the Scottish coast. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, when bad weather postpone the, postpones the final leg of her journey, uh, which is the boat trip to Killerin, she is forced to wait it out on the Isle of Mole, M as in my name, U-L-L, among a community of people whose values are quite different from hers. There she meets Torquil, Torquil, Oh my God, that's hard to say. Yeah, there, you know, there are a lot of words that are hard to say in this. Torquil McNeil, played by Roger Livesey, who was in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, uh, among, or excuse me, uh, a naval officer trying to go home to Killerin while on shore leave. They are sheltered for the night in the nearby home of Torquil's friend, Katrina Potts. Jones suggests to Katrina that she could sell her property to get money, and Katrina replies, money isn't everything. Hmm. The next day, on their way to catch a bus to Tobermory, where she can call Bellinger by radio, they come upon the ruins of Moy Castle. I hope I'm saying that right. Joan wants to take a look inside, but Torquil refuses to go in when she reminds him that the terrible curse associated when she reminds him, excuse me, that the terrible curse associated with it only applies to the Laird of Killerin. Torquil introduces himself. He is the Laird, and Bellinger has only rented his island. On the bus, the locals, not knowing who Joan is, recount several disparaging stories about Bellinger. 
uh-oh. At the Coast Guard station in Tobermory, Joan places a call to Bellinger on Killer and Joan and Tor Torquil stay at the Western Isles, Isles Hotel in Tobermory. She asks him to eat at a separate table to avert gossip as the bad weather worsens into a full-scale gale. Ooh, I like that word. Torquil spends more time with Joan, who becomes increasingly torn between her ambition and her growing attraction to him. When Joan visits Aknequash, Croish, Croish, I can't say it. She is surprised to re-encounter Torquil, who feigns not to know her in the presence of others, among them Bellinger's friends. She and Torquil attend a Kaylee. A Kaylee, by the way, is this big Scottish uh, uh, social gathering where everybody dances and sing and there's a lot of beer and celebration and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Kaylee is uh, celebrating a couple's diamond wedding anniversary. The three bagpipers hired to play at Joan's wedding perform. Torquil translates the song Nut Brown Maiden for Joan, emphasizing the line, You're the maid for me. Wink, wink. Despite Joan's hesitancy, Torquil persuades her to dance. Oh, Desperate, that's a sweet moment. Desperate to salvage her carefully laid plans, Joan tries to persuade Rarder Moore to take her to kill her in immediately. But he, it sounded like I was having a stroke. But he knows conditions are far too dangerous. Joan manages to bribe Moore. Moore's young assistant, excuse me, Kenny, into attempting it by offering him 20 pounds, enough money to buy a half share in Moore's boat and marry his daughter, Bridie, uh, Bridie. Shit, I'm sorry, guys. Torquil tries to talk Joan out of it, but she's adamant. He gives up in disgust, but when Katrina tells Torquil that Joan is running away from him, he races to the case side. K, Q-U-A-I, that's how you say it, right? Yes, case side. Kayside, who the hell invented that word? And invites himself aboard. En route, the boat's engine is flooded and they are nearly caught in the Cory Vrecken Whirlpool. Yes, this is a real place too, the Cory Vrecken Whirlpool. It is, excuse me, it's a narrow strait between the islands of Jura and Scarba in Argyll and Butte, which is on the west coast of uh, Scotland. So anyway, this is a really cool sequence, which I'll get into, I'll get into soon. Anyway, they're in this whirlpool. They almost die. Torquil restarts the motor just in time, and the trio returns safely to Mole. Mole. Oh my god, I can't say anything. I'm sorry, Scott. Any Scottish people, if you're listening, please forgive me. Finally, the weather clears. I'm dying to go to Scotland, by the way. It's on my bucket list. Joan asks Torquil for a parting kiss before they go their separate ways. Torquil enters Moy Castle, and the curse takes effect almost immediately. Cent Remember the curse I was telling you about? So centuries earlier... Torquil's ancestors stormed the castle to capture his unfaithful wife and her lover. He had them bound together and cast them and cast into the castle's water-filled dungeon, which had a stone just big enough for one person to stand on. When their strength gave out, they dragged each other into the water, but not before she placed a curse on the lairds of Killerin. Torquil finds the inscription of the curse, which reads, If he, MacNeil of Killerin, and every MacNeil after him shall ever cross the threshold of Moy, never shall he leave it's a free man he shall be chained to a woman to the end of his days i'm irish i'm sorry and shall die in his chains irish and scottish i can never tell them apart those accents i really can't and i'm sorry if that's offensive but i have such a hard time differentiating them from the battlements torquil sees joan and the three pipers playing nut brown maiden from earlier marching resolutely towards him the couple meet in the castle and embrace they walk away together along the lane arm in arm I know where I'm going, the song, which is sung in the beginning of the movie, is sung as the end credits roll. The end. <sighs> it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I don't know 
how else to describe it apart from it's beautiful. And again, what I loved especially about it was how Pal and Pressburger could have made this such a conventional romance. You know, like, look, you read the, the um, plot of this movie a woman is about to get married. She gets stranded on uh, this aisle in Scotland and she meets this other guy and has uh, feelings for him, you know, uh, romantic feelings. Okay, how do you think this movie is going to end? Duh, they're going to get together. You know what I'm saying? But this movie, though, it's hard to explain because, like, the ending is predictable, but throughout the movie, though, it's like Powell and Pressburger know that it's going to end predictably. And therefore, they need to add all these things. And the curse, the story with the curse and, um, you know, Torquil's family history and, you know, his fate. All of that adds such a fresh take to the romantic, this romantic, you know, setup that we so often see in movies. So that really works. I think also the character of Joan is really important in this movie. I mean, Hiller is tremendous as Joan, but also Joan is like such an independent woman just from beginning to end, you know? And also, you know, Torquil is kind of more of like the vulnerable guy in in this position, which is something that I think is what makes this movie stand apart, you know? Because in a lot of romances, especially back in the old days, you know, this came out in 1945, you got to remember. Back in the olden days, in so many of those movies, it's usually the opposite. It's usually the man who's a big macho guy and the woman who's like, no, I can't, you know? But in this one... They reverse it, you know? So there really is a strong feminist uh, uh, side to this movie that really does stand out. So I can't recommend it enough. I really, really, like, I'm still thinking about it. And if you can tell by my voice, I am still thinking about it. But anyway, let's get on to the next segment, BTS Secrets and Scandals. You can see the trees now. In half an hour, you'll be able to see the shore. In half an hour, I shall be asleep. There's a grand view of Caloran from here, the northeast end. At sunrise, the light shines on the sands of Belnahar Bay. With a glass, you can make out the people walking about. Have you got a match or a lighter? Thanks. BTS Secrets and Scandals, also known as Trivia. Um, originally, when I recorded that little, uh, uh, you know, noise, uh, oh my God, what's it called? Why am I blanking right now? It's the rain. I just realized, so I have to let my dog out and I have to go out in this rain and I'm really, really scared and I don't want to do it. Uh, trivia, what was I saying? Yeah, when I originally recorded that little um, uh, uh, sentence, I said it in a sexual flirtatious voice, but I don't want to be stupid. I'm stupid enough already. Let's not, um, you know, make things inappropriate because this is not an inappropriate movie too. This is a lovely movie and there's love and it's very, very PG and lovely. So uh, I know where I'm going. It premiered at the actual Isle of Mole on November 8th, 1945. And this whole movie was filmed, well, some of it was filmed in the studio in the UK, but it was filmed on location in Scotland. Pal and Pressburger really did go out there and, um, you know, uh, scout everything and get the best shots and the shots in this movie are absolutely amazing um this is filmed in black and white and he actually wanted um michael powell one of the directors he wanted to make one of uh his and pressburger's other movies a matter of life and death also on this list but it's like it's way up higher higher on the list uh they actually he wanted to make this movie first but um 
he had to film it in color, and the Technicolor cameras actually were not available yet, so they decided to make this movie instead in black and white. And the black and white makes it, uh, makes it, I think, all the more breathtaking. I mean, if like there are any Outlander fans watching this or listening to this, excuse me, you will eat this movie up. Anyone who is a Scotland like diehard or just loves the UK. Uh, you will eat this movie up. Um, I, I, uh, what I also love too is the script of this movie has been. I have to sit up, and my ch- no- chair is going to make a big noise. So hold on. <clears throat> um, the script of this movie has been renowned all these years later, and in fact, in 1947, Pressburger actually met the head of the script department at Paramount Pictures. This guy told him that the studio, Paramount Pictures, used this film as an example of what the perfect screenplay should be. And it was even shown to writers to kind of, like, inspire them, you know? That is incredible when you think about that. Also, what's more incredible is that uh, Pressburger wrote this script in four days. I don't know if Powell co-wrote with him. Um, I kind of was finding, like, conflicting... uh, facts about that because they both share the writing credit but um anyway Pressburger though I mean that's true he wrote it in four days that is freaking amazing to write a script if any of you have written a script in that short amount of time I mean god bless you that to write a script and just let it all flow out like that also back in the day this is before you know Max and word docs and going get this is like the time of typewriters so if you make a mistake that is so freaking inconvenient and you have to go back and change it so that's amazing I think the fact that this is such a small movie and Paramount Pictures took this random British movie and used it you know, to show other aspiring screenwriters in big Hollywood, that says something. That really is amazing. Roger Livesey uh, did not want... Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Roger Livesey, who plays Torquil in the movie, he actually was not available to go to the islands where they shot this movie. So the shots of him that are from far away, they're actually a, a body double, uh, which is, I did not notice that. He also was told that he was too old and quote-unquote too portly. I don't really know what portly is. It's like a British word. Uh, to play Torquil. So he lost 20 pounds and he changed his appearance to play uh, the character. He did a good job. I have seen pictures of Livesey. I remember seeing an interview of Tilda Swinton where she said uh, Livesey was like one of her biggest crushes when she was a kid. Uh, he's a handsome guy. He's very good in this movie, too, because, you know, he's not, like, the most dashing uh, love, uh, uh, you know, guy, person in this this romance, you know. I, and the same with Hiller, too. These aren't, not, I'm not saying that they're ugly, of course not, but, you know, they, they're not, like, gussied up or any anything like that. They're made to look like real people, which is, I think, really important. And Livesey also originally wasn't cast to play Torquil. James Mason was. James Mason was this very famous actor. He was in Lolita. He was in A Star is Born, the version with uh, Judy Garland. Uh, He actually uh, quit, though, because he didn't want this made me laugh. He didn't want to, quote unquote, live rough in the islands. Uh, So Livesey went on and took the part. Now, it's also been said that Mason said that he didn't want to do the movie because Powell allegedly refused to pay Mason's wife uh, on the location shoot when she was with him. Is it true or is it not true? I do not know. 
And I have no comment. I don't know. I, I don't know these people. From what I've read, Powell and Pressburger were very nice guys. But, um, yeah, you know, people don't get along. That's life. Pressburger also said uh, in his biography that the Whirlpool scene... Now, the, the shots, there really there are shots of uh, the Whirlpool, which I already forgot the name of. Oh, Corey Vrecken. Those are real shots, but the actual, like, close-up action shots, those aren't real, of course, because, you know, you would die. So they were actually shot in a huge tank. Uh, the tank was filled with jellied water uh, that was had been learned from uh, the parting of the water sequence in the Ten Commandments. You know that famous shot of Charlton Heston going, like, you shall not... No. Not you shall not pass. That's Lord of the Rings. Charlton Heston plays Moses, and you know he he uh, lifts up his uh, 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 what is it? Um, shit! I can't think today. <sighs> it's the goddamn water, the rain. Um, it is distracting me so much. But long story short, uh, yes, that was filmed in a tank. I have a fun uh, fact about Corey Vrecken. Corey Vrecken is the second or third, depending upon the source, largest whirlpool in the world. Oh, God. Whirlpool in the world. Say that ten times fast. Uh, it uh, forms in the Gulf of Corey Vrecken, which is a narrow strait, uh, like I said, on the western Scottish coast. During a flood tide, the way this works is the natural topogra topography of the area in conjunction with the strong water current creates whirlpools, standing waves, and other effects on the sea surface. How that works, I do not know. The best moment. That is a hard one. Uh, the best moment in the movie. I... Well, when when um, they kiss at the end, that's a very sweet moment. And, you know, they like everybody kisses in the exact same way. It's always like the man hugs her and then turns the back of his head to the camera so that they can't actually see their lips touch. I mean, it's like ridiculous, but it is romantic. And I kind of wish that they brought that back in movies, you know? That'd be nice. That is a great, beautiful moment, but I think, in general, the whirlpool sequence... No, I lied. I lied. That's not my favorite sequence in the in the movie. My favorite moment in the movie is in the beginning when Wendy Hiller... Uh, Frankie, sorry, my dog. Joan, uh, the character, when she is traveling to go meet her husband, she's on this train, and she's sleeping, and she starts having these dreams, and there's this voiceover and this song, and the way this, it is filmed, it is so surreal... The imagery is outstanding. It is literally like something out of a painting, uh, a very trippy painting that, you know, you're looking at while inserting like mushrooms in your every hole in your body. So really, really good. That was my favorite moment. Mais est-ce que je suis d'accord avec les critiques de ce film? That is French for do I agree with what the critics had to say about this movie? Why is it in French? I don't know. Why do you care? Shut up. I love French. I will speak French anytime, any day. I went to France last summer and I was so annoying. I loved it. Alrighty. Uh, what did the critics have to say about uh, I know where I'm going? Well, I found a few. Uh, it has 100% of Rotten Tomatoes. Jake Hamilton from Empire Magazine called it one of the greatest and sadly most forgotten romantic comedies ever, which has not a cracking script, but some trademark terrific visuals. Cracking script. Well, I think it does have a cracking script. And yes, it does have amazing visuals. Eh, kind of.
kind of agree, kind of disagree with what he has to say there. It is a very forgotten movie. No one in the world has heard of this movie unless you are a film nerd like me. Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian, very famous uh, film critic, he wrote, uh, he, he called I Know Where I'm Going a movie of romance and myth, comedy and whimsy, but fiercely rooted in reality and geography. Agreed. Geography, big part in this movie. James Agee from Time uh, said that Powell and Pressburger achieve unobtrusively a remarkable study of a place and a people. This study is never quaint, travel, travelogish, that's not a word, uh, educational or condescending. That I can agree with. I concur, je suis d'accord, because it's not a condescending movie. You see some movies that try to be super, super different and they just come off as so superficial, but this isn't like that. You see, I kind of felt that way about the life and death of Colonel Blimp. Uh, but this isn't like that. I, this kind of does, it manages to be its own thing, but not really be like annoying, if that makes any sense. Annoying in that it's like, look at me, I'm different. You know, you get a lot of movies that do that. And it's, it can be very, um, uh, very, cringeworthy. Rich Klein from Shadows on the Wall said, even if the outcome is predictable, a sharp sense of humor keeps everything buoyant, spiraling around a wonderful mix of people who are quick-witted and quirky. And while the effects work is dated, it's still properly thrilling. Yeah, you know, the special effects for a few of the scenes. Okay, yes, it's also 1945. And I think for what they did, it is amazing. When Joan and Torquil are on that boat and the whirlpool is almost sucking them down into a whole it does not look like a green screen you it also does not look like they're in a tank that looks like the real thing and i fell for it and you know what i got cold and i'm also having like i'm, I'm i feel like <sighs> i was gonna say i feel wet just thinking about it but that sounds wrong uh but anyway yes all good reviews is it really one of the best movies of all time this is going to be a hard one. This is a new segment that I added. And you know what? Right now, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. It's its own thing for 1945, for a movie to be its own thing. That's a really big deal. We're talking the 40s. We're talking, excuse me, we're talking, you know, when studios basically would have control over, I mean, they still do, but would have control over these directors and these screenwriters and say, well, your movie's too out there or it doesn't really fit the Hollywood genre. You have to change it. This movie is not like that. And you know what? It works. So I am going to call it one of the best movies of all time. One of the best movies of all time, not the best, uh, but I think it's earned that. I really, really do. And I'm very happy to have watched it. And I'm going to go watch it again. No, I'm not. Uh, you know, this. I'm recording this the week that Gypsy Road Blanchard's uh, documentary, docu-series, excuse me, is on Lifetime. And I know I love true crime. So I've like just been, uh, I'm like obsessed with that. So uh, I already watched two episodes and I'm ready to watch the next two, but they're not ready yet. So thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I will see you next time. I'm going to end the episode with some... Uh, words of wisdom. Get off your ass, get your ass off the couch and go to the movies. Okay. Go to the freaking movies. Stop streaming stuff. If you have to get a babysitter, but you can't get a babysitter and you have kids, I will babysit for you. Okay. I do not mind. Just go to the movies. Stop streaming. That's all. Bye-bye. Ah, oh, 
you made it, you made it, you made it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of I'm Reviewing Here. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. You can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to follow me on Instagram at I'm Reviewing Here. You can also subscribe on YouTube. New episodes drop there the same day they drop on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Please leave a review if you'd like. Be mean, be nice, hit on me. I don't really care. Candor really, really is important to me, and, you know, it helps the podcast, too. So uh, I really hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you especially by Nervous Chuckles. That is my fake production company because I make people nervously chuckle all the time because they never know if I'm telling a joke or not, so they're always like, (laughs) oh, do I laugh? Do I not laugh? Is he serious? Is he insane? Did he get out of the the loony? What's going on? So if I made you nervously chuckle, then that means that I did my job, and thank you. There is uh, no funding for this podcast, but if you want to give me money, then uh, yeah, like hit me up. DM me. Bye-bye.